I doubt that you will find a more moving or meaningful start to any worship service than the one that we have just experienced moments ago. There's something about the reading of the names and the lighting of the candles and the ringing of the bells and the standing in solemn observance that captivates a very deep part of our souls. It's that part of us that still walks on the finite and imperfect side of eternity. On this side of a broken world, where bodies still break down, where death still pervades, and where we find ourselves confronting the inevitable reality of our own mortality. And it has to be that very same kind of moment that Mary and Martha had to be experiencing when Jesus finally decided to arrive at Bethany in today's storytelling. You know how the story goes. You saw it portrayed beautifully and vividly by our storytellers. Lazarus was dying. His sisters knew it. They made a pitch for Jesus to come to them. But Jesus chose to wait. He didn't show up. He paused for a moment. Not out of callous indifference to the family. Because as we find out very clearly, Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Martha. And Jesus loved Lazarus. He wasn't being cold in his indifference. Instead, he was trying to make a point. A very difficult point to make when we are gripped so hard by grief. But it is a point that makes all the difference in the world. A point that makes all the difference in light of eternity. And it is a point that you and I need to hear this morning. When Jesus finally arrived, Mary and Martha were grieving. They were angry, quite understandably angry, because they were angry at the unfairness of it all. Not so much angry at Jesus, but angry at the injustice of death. And so Jesus arrived right then and there, simply to sit and to listen, to commiserate, to share in their grief. Jesus was there to identify with the struggles of a grieving family. And I have to share with you that of all the wonderful parts of my vocation and of all the cherished aspects of my own calling, it is in moments like this that I find of the most sacred and most cherished privileges. The time I get to spend with a family in the wake of the death of a loved one to plan a funeral is one of the most important and most sacred occasions of my job. I am there, not just as a professional, but as a counselor and a residential theologian and a pastoral wordsmith. Every critical component of my calling to ministry is represented in that hallowed hour when I'm simply there to sit with a grieving family. Most of all, I'm there to elicit and gather stories that capture the family's fullest and best recollection of their loved one. 
You know, it often takes very little prompting on my part in that setting to get the stories started. The stories often come randomly from different members of the family in no prescribed order or flow. Sometimes family members will share a choice story from their loved one's youth and immediately on the pivot of a dime will jump right ahead to the loved one's last days. And then back to their marriage and then back to their childhood. There's no planned sequence to the order in which grieving families tell their stories to me. Sometimes they'll talk about a loved one's difficult days, immediately followed by a happy memory. And then someone tells a funny story that makes them laugh. And then simply one word or phrase or a look on a family member's face will start the waterworks all over again. And just like that, a family is moved to tears. That, that is the kind of storytelling and story gathering that happens When a family is in grief, you've been there and I have too. Families will share a story immediately as it comes to mind. Even if it's not in any kind of sequential or chronological order, hoping that simply in its uttering, simply in externalizing that story from a person's being, it can be captured and preserved for all time, like capturing fireflies At night in the summer. They work quickly to capture those stories. So that those small flickering lights can be preserved. In these dark days. And that is exactly the dynamic at play. When Jesus finally showed up. The very first thing that Martha expressed to Jesus when Jesus showed up, was her understandable grief and anger. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Clear anger, clear misery, clear grief. But in the very same breath, simply turning on a dime in that exact same sentence, just like a firefly at night, immediately a new insight captures her mind. Did you catch it? She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says, even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. And I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Remarkable. She moves from anger to hope in the same breath. She moves from darkness to light in the exact same moment. She moves from grief to promise right then and there. And in that very small moment, Martha captures all that we need to know about what it means to live on this side of eternity. Because for Christian people, we believe that when we walk on this side of the grave, we do so in the shadow of eternity. We claim that though we live in finite and mortal days where bodies break down, where death pervades, we live with the light of eternity in our hearts. And that means... That the power of the resurrection and the promise of new life is not simply something that will await us when we die. 
but it can actually inform our hope and it can shape our behavior and it can alter our perspectives right now. Here in the present day. Here as we walk on this side of eternity. In other words, eternity can shape our mortality. The future can inform our present. And the promise of God's glory that is yet to be revealed can actually be experienced right now. So that the way we live today has consequences for eternity. You know what's most interesting to me about those moments that I sit down with grieving family members when I listen to their stories? Though the stories that they share are as varied as the number of loved ones that we've lost, there is one common facet among them. Inevitably, without fail, all of the families tell stories that have this one thing in common. Loved ones aren't remembered for their possessions. They aren't remembered for their achievements, not their gadgets, not their toys, not their properties or their portfolios, not their successes or their trophies, not their diplomas or those distinctions. None of those things ever seem to matter when it comes to family members remembering them. So what does a family member remember the most? The relationships. The people. The people that were impacted by that person's love and talent and time. Those who were privileged enough to be within that person's sphere of influence. All of those people who say, I will never ever be the same again because that person was in my life. That is what people always remember. That's the common thread among all the stories that I've heard over and over again, dozens of times in the past year, countless times in my ministry. Every family, every funeral underscores this fundamental truth that the true treasure in life is found in the relationships that one builds and maintains over the course of one's lifetime. So here's the thing that's been stirring within me over these last few days. And here's the one lesson that Jesus needed to teach Mary and Martha, and maybe why he waited to show up. That in the end, after you and I are gone, after our lives are represented by one of these candles someday, we are going to be remembered. We will be remembered. Not for our trophies or our treasures, but by the quality of the love that we shared and gave and received. That will be the most important thing that we leave behind and the only thing. It will be the only thing that will truly matter. Because you see, the way you choose to live today will have an eternal impact. Maybe that's why John Wesley ended the Wesley Covenant prayer the way he did. 
after calling all of us to challenging confession and an alteration of our behavior and reorienting our souls after the way and will of God, he ended with one of the most beautiful lines he ever entered as a way of sealing the promise of that prayer and reminding us of our eternal impact. His concluding words, which we will say at the end of the service, were these. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. In other words, may my life be a living reminder that the choices that I make will have eternal consequence. And that even though my body will break down and cease to exist someday, the one thing that will remain is the way that I have chosen to live eternally today. And maybe that's why he said what he said with his very last breath. On March 2nd, 1791, at the age of 88, John Wesley was lying on his deathbed, surrounded by a close circle of family and friends. One by one, with all the strength he could muster in his feeble and weary hands, he touched each hand around the room one by one, saying farewell, farewell. And with his very last breath, John Wesley said, the best of all is God is with us. Nine words. That's all he said. Nine words, two of which were verbs. The same verb, the same tense. The best of all is God is with us. As he stood there on the brink of the future, as he stood there on the horizon of eternity, he left behind for all of us who are called Methodists the ongoing reminder that eternity is. God's promise is. God's presence is. And the eternal impact for which we will be remembered someday is. And maybe that's why John, when he concluded his final revelation in the text that we open the service with, after all of this futuristic vision of what we will see someday, the lamb who sits on the throne said one statement in present tense, behold, I am making all things new. You see, at the very end, we can remember that the way we live today can be a participation in eternity. So maybe you and I both need to do some work in our lives and in these days, investing into those relationships with people, to cherish the relationships with those that you have around you, to love them, to spend time with them, to invest in them, and tell them how you feel about them before your funeral or theirs. Because you won't have them forever. And they won't have you forever. And the opportunity that you have today to make a difference for God in the kingdom, don't wait. 
do it now. Because the choice you have to surrender and obedient, be obedient to God is a now decision, not tomorrow. Because the covenant which we have made here on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. And may we live for eternity. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we are in awe of the resurrection. We are captivated by the power of eternity to shape our minds and our hearts. Employ within us a spirit of hope and promise. So that as we choose to live today, we may do so in light of eternity. So that the covenantal promise that we make today may be revealed and ratified for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.